Last week we asked you the question, now that you are known by God, why would you pursue a false God? And there was such a warm welcome of that message that it seemed to me there was probably a good time to further elaborate on what it is to pursue a false God and why one would do that. But then, of course, to look at the solution for that and discuss how one can overcome that. Why would you, now that you are known by the one true God, return to a false God? Now that you have the real God, why would you return to a fake God? One that can't help you, one that can't bring you joy, one that can only lead you down a path of destruction and devastation and debilitation. Why? You might ask that question of anyone, any Christian ought to be willing to receive that question. Why would you do that? Why do I say it that way? Because every Christian is guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're guilty of idolatry. Titled the message this morning, Idolatry, Worse Than You Know. And I'm going to ask you to buckle in. Because if I don't step on your toes this morning, I've failed. If you're not impacted by the significance of what God's Word has to say about idolatry, if it doesn't rattle you, then something is desperately wrong, either with my preaching or your listing or both. So I really am committed this morning to saying that which is true. I want to say it in love. But I want to say it in a way that will turn you upside down. I want myself to be turned upside down. As I think of this topic, I can think of no other topic that ought to be more offensive for the person who is in the Lord. And many times, in fact, I would say perhaps most times, that which is helpful starts out by first being offensive. You don't have any idea how idolatrous you are. You don't know the beginning of just how much you love false gods. Nor do I. I'm not categorizing you somehow differently from myself. But I think the truth that the Word of God has for us on this topic is in fact devastating. You might even wonder if you're even in the faith as you begin to examine the length and the extent and the depth of your idolatry. But let me assure you that that's not my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is not to leave you discouraged by your idolatry, but to leave you encouraged, strengthened, wound up for new, exciting, vibrant, exhilarating, effective spiritual growth that people would know Christ as a result of your willingness to acknowledge and abandon your idolatry, which, by the way, they know about. You don't hide it very well, nor do I. The things that you and I know about each other are many times the things that we're just too afraid to mention. And almost always it can be traced back to this issue. Idolatry. I told you last week that you were a slave to false gods when you did not know God. Those are really Paul's words, but that was point number one. We also said point number two. You now know God because he chose to know you. I won't make that argument today. The Bible makes that argument time and time again. We love him because he first loved us. He loved us from eternity past. He placed his special love upon us. He did that before the foundations of the world. Point three was, but you've returned to your former false gods. Paul says in Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You see the practical upshot of that? When you return to that false deity, you're subjecting yourself to the slavery of that deity. Temporarily, but that is what you're doing. Point number four was, so your spiritual growth appears to be non-existent. So your spiritual growth appears to be non-existent, which is why Paul expresses the lament, have I labored in vain? You know, I don't want to say that. You don't want to say that about those in whose lives you have invested your life. 
You don't want to get to the end of your parenting and say, have I labored in vain? You don't want to get to the end of your spiritual input in other people's lives and say, have I labored in vain? But there comes a time where you have to ask that question when a person's spiritual growth seems to have been brought to a halt. And this is Paul's heart. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's not questioning their faith because he saw the track record. But he is questioning whether or not they are willing to abandon the false God that they've clearly embraced for the one true God. Will you return to the Lord? Paul's words in Colossians 1, 28 and 29 are really my heartbeat in ministry. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man complete in Christ. I don't want anybody falling through the cracks. But the fact is that Paul is questioning here whether or not he's labored in vain because he has labored. Verse 29 in Colossians 1 goes on to say, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power. I strive according to his power, not my power. It's not about my energy. It's not about my ability to conjure up a willingness to minister to people, but according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul is acknowledging that God does a work through people, through ministers, through shepherds, through pastors, who will be faithful to work hard at it, knowing that it is God's power used in that hard work in a spirit-filled manner. So again, we asked the question last week, now that you are known by God, why would you return to a false God? Well, this morning... As you see there in your bulletin, my statement goes like this. So that it will not ensnare us. So that it will not entrap us. So that it will not imprison us. We must see idolatry as avoiding accountability to the one true God by worshiping the false gods we've created in our hearts. You see, there's a sense in which idols don't even exist. If there is such a thing as idolatry going on in your heart, then it is because you're worshiping that which is not a god. You're giving deity to that which, in essence, doesn't exist as deity. Does it exist? Yeah, in some other form. But you've made it out to be something other than what it is. So have I. Have you examined your heart and life for idolatry? Have you done a spiritual inventory? Have you looked closely? Have you asked others to help you look closely internally to see whether or not idolatry is there? And again, as I've mentioned, that's not really the question because it's there. The question is, where is it? What is it focused upon? And what will you do about it? You're guilty. I'm guilty. And so I would say this morning, let's ask the Lord to teach us to have no other gods before him. Let's ask the Lord to do a work in our hearts that would bring about a scouring of idolatry. To look at it, to call it what it is, to see the Lord really begin to do a work where we will be honest about the work that needs to be done. See, if you can just kind of generically say, yeah, I'm a sinner, I I need sanctification, and leave it at that. You won't grow. You've got to be willing to acknowledge where it is and what it is. You've got to be willing to call it what it is. So again, so that it will not ensnare us. We must see idolatry as avoiding accountability to the one true God by worshiping the false gods we have created in our hearts. So I've got four points for you this morning. Four points that I think will be helpful to you and to me with regard to doing away with this idolatry. Number one, the definition. You can just write down the word definition if you want. Definition of idolatry. What is it? You need a definition of idolatry. You need to think rightly with all things biblical, but in this case, we want to think biblically about what idolatry is. So you need a a definition of it. In the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we read, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the heart of God. God himself says, I am a jealous God. 
And you and I have a tendency, I think at least initially, to say, well, wait, wait a minute, but jealousy, that's, that's sin, that's evil, not for God. Because God alone can and does declare that he alone will receive glory. He says, my glory will not be given to another. I will not be mocked. So the person who attempts to give God's glory to something else, to someone else, is in fact endeavoring to mock God. And so God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And this written to idolatrous Israel. The idolatrous people of God who looked at the idolatry of the nations around them and at one point, much later than this, declared, give us a king. And God said, well, I'm your king. No, 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 no. We want an earthly king like the pagan nations around us. That was idolatry. In verse 4 of Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain so God's hatred for idolatry God's hatred his righteous indignation toward that which worships other entities is such that God is even willing to say don't even take my name in vain what does that mean I think you may have some idea as to what that means but Let me lay it out for you. The person who takes God's name in vain is the person who takes God's name. He embraces God's name. He calls himself a child of God. And he lives his life in a vain expression of that. A worthless, empty expression of what it means to be a child of God. That's what it is to take the name of the Lord in vain. He says he's a child of God. He talks as if he's a child of God. But his life proves that he isn't. So he takes the name of the Lord in vain. Point number one. The definition. This is a biblical or you might even say a general definition of idolatry. It's wrongly assigned deity. It's false deification. That might be the more theological definition. False deification. It's when anything or anybody gets what God alone deserves. It's assigning deity to something that's not deity. Now, the idol, in and of itself, is not necessarily bad. A piece of wood is not intrinsically evil. It's a piece of wood. It's amoral. Idolatry is any and all wrong thinking about God. This is why we put so much emphasis months ago on the idolatry of modalism. It's idolatry. It's a wrong God. It's not the true God. Modalism says that God has personalities. That he is one God, but he manifests himself in different manifestations or different personalities. You've heard someone use that term before. He's a modalist. God is one true God who is three persons, not personalities. And the words are vastly different. Modalism is idolatry. There are many forms of idolatry. Mormonism is idolatry. Why? Because it takes the person of Jesus and twists it. Biblical Christianity says that Jesus is the God-man. He is God in eternity past who became flesh. Mormonism says that a man who is a good man became a God. And it misses so much of what the New Testament teaches on the deity of Jesus Christ. There's so many forms of of idolatry with regard to the person of God, but ultimately it is any and all wrong thinking about God. Now you see why I'm willing to stand here and accuse you and me of idolatry? You get that? Because we're always going to be growing in our understanding of the character of God as we are 
increasingly subjected to the truth of the scripture and what it says about the character of God. You don't know, nor do I, nor do you or I understand everything that the Bible says about the character of God, but it's perfectly enough. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness and the true knowledge of him, and that comes from the scripture. So you have all that you need, and so do I, in the scripture with regard to the character of God. A.W. Tozer has said, the most important thing about us is what we think about God. That's the most important thing about you. As you grow in thinking rightly about the character of God, you are decreasingly engaging in idolatry. Killing your idolatry by increasing your understanding of the character of God. Idolatry is an effort to avoid accountability with God by replacing him with a false God. Adam and Eve engaged in idolatry. So do you and I. As we go through these texts this morning, I want to ask you to constantly be thinking about your own life. Set everybody else's lives aside for a minute. Just think about you, because trust me, you've got the need for growth in this area, as do I. Think about you as we go through these texts. Think about where you have engaged in idolatry, where you have chosen not to trust the one true God. You've even hidden from him. And you've embraced something else in which to find your trust. Maybe you're, maybe you're hoping for better health. Maybe you're hoping for a better spouse. Maybe you're hoping for a better job. We'll get into a list of things. But whatever it is you're hoping in and you find yourself discouraged beyond the point of any kind of spiritual stimulation in the church, you're finding yourself to be useless because something has so overtaken you. Your problem this morning Your greatest problem is not that circumstance. You're worshiping a false God. You're worshiping a false God. You remember that Paul in Galatians 1, 6-7 said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Remember that? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. What are they doing? They're deserting him for something that felt better in the moment. Worshipping a false god. Engaging in a false gospel. There were those who intentionally, strategically, deliberately sneaked in to the Galatian churches. And what was their effort? It was to steal their liberty. That's what Paul tells us. It was to steal their liberty. They had the freedom to honor Christ with the one true gospel. And so they came with a false gospel. A gospel of circumcision. A gospel of Mosaic law. You need to do these things in order to have salvation. And Paul said, no, no, no. I'm astonished that you've abandoned the one true God. And yet he never indicates that he thinks that they are not in Christ. You see, the issue here for you and me today and for all Christians, the issue is not that we ought to be questioning our faith, at least initially. The issue is we ought to be questioning whether or not we're living the fullest, most vibrant, most ministerially, evangelistically effective lives as we observe the person of God and abandon all false gods. Point number two. Point number one was a definition of idolatry. Point number two is a diagnosis of your idolatry. This gets real personal. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 13 and 14 say, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You get the connection? So you've got this temptation. There's some willingness on your part to think about doing that which you know is wrong. You're considering sin and therefore you're sinning in your consideration of that sin. What is that? It's idolatry. At the very best, you're considering worshiping a false god. Paul says flee from that, run from that. That's part of the solution, by the way. Proverbs 12, verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. See, are you willing to do this diagnosis? Are you willing to involve spiritual help from others in this diagnosis? Or are you just happy in your sadness? Are you just convinced that it's okay to be miserable 
And to be ineffective in ministry, ineffective evangelistically, uh, walk around being the center of attention because everybody wonders why you're sad. Are you willing to continue living in that state? Or are you willing to receive instruction? The wise man loves instruction. And the fool hates it. I'm going to give you a list of idols. Some of these might involve you and some might not. But I thought this might be helpful. Number one, your preference. Your preference can be an idol. What you like best surely must be right and all else must be wrong. Anything that doesn't fit your preference is an idol. Mark it down, in your heart at least, if not on paper. Think about that today. When have you most recently engaged in heated debate with someone else simply because they are not operating in congruity with your expectations? Your preferences may be right and someone else's preferences may be wrong. That can and does happen. But the question is, are you always convinced that your preference is right as over against everyone else's opposing preferences being wrong? I just know it's wrong. I can just feel it. You've said that or heard people say that. Or my spirit just told me it wasn't right. There's no biblical definition of why it wasn't right. It was just I could feel it in my bones. Number two, your possessions. Your possessions. Those are often idols. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure? What do you treasure? What means most to you? Great way to figure that out is to look at your credit card bill at the end of the month or your check register. That's where your treasure is. Number three, money. We'll go a step further here, money. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment. There's, a, there's great gain. There are those who, who feign godliness. But there is great gain, Paul says, in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You've heard it said that money is the root of all evil. That's a terrible misquote uh, and butchering of this passage. What Paul has said is, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So it is one root among many and results in all kinds of evil. The person who loves money will ultimately find himself very likely leaving the faith. Why does Jesus say it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to enter the eye of a needle? Well, primarily because it's impossible for men to be saved. That's where Jesus has said, with God all things are possible. And what he's referring to is salvation. God does the impossible. But for the rich man, many times his hope is in his money. He always turns to his money. The truth is the poor man does too. He just many times turns and it's not there. But the reality is we all look first to money in many cases to answer our questions. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How am I going to get that car that I need? How am I going to buy that house? How am I going to get those clothes? Well, first we think of what do I have in my pocket? What's in my wallet? Is it going to be enough? We ought to be thinking is, is it needful? Is it possible that you today, even this week, have engaged engaged in the idolatry of money for the sake of the idolatry of possessions. Number four, reputation or fame. Perhaps you have a personal passion for being known for particular successes and accomplishments. You just want people to know, I'm good at these things. Do you love your reputation more than you desire integrity? Do you love your reputation more than you desire integrity? Number five, a job. Maybe there's a particular job. You said, if I could just get that job, oh, man, everything would be great. 
Number six, sleep. (laughs) Proverbs 19, verse 15 says, Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Proverbs 24, 33 to 34, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You see why we hate socialism? You see why we hate socialism? Because socialism undoes the truth of these passages. I'm not saying it makes them untrue, but it convinces people that it's not true. It only prolongs the problem. It only prolongs the problem. Proverbs 20, verse 13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Work is the point. Don't sleep. Number seven, another idol is marital status. You can put in parenthesis marriage or singleness. Some worship marriage. Others worship the idea of not being married. If you want to be married, become the person that a godly single person would want to marry. I know there's a little more to it than that. But that's really what it comes down to. You really want to be married? Ensure by the biblical process of sanctification that you are and are becoming increasingly the godly person that a godly person would want to marry. If you're single and you want to be married, learn to long to be married while being content, single. You can do both. It's a constant daily tension, but you can do both. The person who is married but worships singleness probably needs to really sit down and think that through with someone who can be helpful and objective. Number eight, sports. It's obvious. I mean, that's one of the greatest idols of our day. I loved playing football. I played football for 14 years, and I wake up every morning with the snap, crackle, pop, and pain to prove it. I got lots of physical problems, and at the time I can remember saying, you know, I'll deal with that stuff later. Well, I'm dealing with that stuff later. But the truth is I've really got almost zero interest in sports. Don't ask me over your house to watch a basketball game or golf or football or whatever. I'll really fall asleep. If you want to see me take a nap, then that's, that's how that would work. And I'm not saying that all observation of sports activities is sinful. Please don't think I'm saying that. If that's kind of your deal, good for you. Enjoy that with those who enjoy that. Do it with integrity and with righteousness and in a spirit-filled manner. But I don't think I have to go too far into a look at our society to show the reality that sports are a demigod in the United States of America. Look at all the money that's poured into the sports industry and all for the sake of watching a bunch of guys run around in their pajamas. Duff said. Number nine, politics. Do you blur the lines between patriotism and Christianity? I want to uh, be the the head administrator principal of a, a Christian school years ago while being an associate pastor on the staff of the church that gave oversight to that school. It was a great privilege. It was really a tremendous opportunity. I still have many great relationships with folks from those days gone by. But it became crystal clear to me when we first got there that one of the greatest problems with this school uh, was that one of its strengths was one of its weaknesses. They did a great job of educating the kids with regard to American history, and I love that. I'm grateful for that. You know, take the kids to Jamestown, take them to the to the capital, uh, take them you know, all over the East Coast and just give them an understanding of the history of our nation. I love that. Really, I think that's great. But unfortunately, there was uh, what's, what's commonly referred to as Reconstructionist history, specifically with regard to the spiritual condition of our forefathers. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail with regard to that, but let's just say that that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. It's really not important. It's kind of irrelevant. The fact is that biblical Christianity could do without American patriotism and it would be just fine. If you're very patriotic, good for you, so am I. I've got a flag in my front yard. We fly it every day. We 
Uh, when it gets frayed, we do a ritual burning, you know, the way you're supposed to do it legally and all that. We try to do those things to honor those who have gone before us. Really grateful for that. Very grateful for our military, for our defense, and all those things. But this is really what you need to know to help you think through the distinction between biblical Christianity and American patriotism. Romans 13. I'll read it to you. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Submit to that police officer. And do it with a heart attitude that shows that submission. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's what you need to know. Verse 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. When you resist authority, you resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So when you resist authority, you're resisting what God has instituted and you will incur judgment for it. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Don't you love that command? Be afraid. If you do what is wrong... Be afraid. That's why you get nervous every time you see those red lights in your rearview mirror because you've been doing wrong and you know it. <laughs> then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience. You see that? Why do we do, uh, why do we subject ourselves to governing authorities? Not just because of God's wrath. We should fear God and his wrath. But the fact is, we are to do it for the sake of conscience. You have a clear conscience doing what is right because it honors Christ and that's your life. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I was thinking about doing a message on governmental elections. That's all you need to know. Vote for the guy that's committed to defending the country. Number 10. Food. Food. Do you love food so much that you're willing to sacrifice your testimony? How can you be known by your love for Christ and his body if you are best known for your obvious love for food? This may be one of the best ways to completely eliminate your credibility with people. There's so much that can be said on this issue in a couple of categories. One, with regard to how testimonies are destroyed in this area. But two, with regard to how so much is justified. I mean, the number of supposed disorders. I remember a friend of mine was telling me about a, a guy that he'd been spending time with, and he, he said, the guy keeps telling me, you know, it's his thyroid. It's his thyroid just thyroid and he said you know I was at their house and, and I so I asked him I said so is it your thyroid that makes you get up in the middle of the night and drink all that buttermilk and eat all those cookies <laughs> I thought it was a great question are there real issues of course there are real issues are there medical issues absolutely but friends we as Americans should really really be ashamed yeah, and I include myself I include myself Gluttony is not exclusively assessed by one's weight. It is assessed by one's habits. Say, I know a guy that weighs 500 pounds. Obviously, he's a glutton. How do you know that? Perhaps he's on his way down. Maybe he weighed 600 pounds a year ago. It's not the issue. We're not talking about weight. What we're talking about is use of the item. Do you worship it? Do you love it so much that your testimony means nothing to you? 
Number 11, sex. Ephesians 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He is not an heir with Christ. He is not in Christ. He's not a Christian. This is not a gray area. You say, are you saying a Christian can't commit sexual immorality? No, I did not say that. I didn't say anything like that. I said the person whose life is characterized by the idolatry of sex is not a Christian. And they are drastically different definitions. You say, but, you know, I I know a guy who clearly loves the Lord. He's involved in the church. He's subjecting himself to counsel. He's trying to work through this. Good for him. He's showing repentance. He's showing a hatred for sexual immorality. Does he still sin the sin of sexual immorality? It's not the question. It's not the question. The question is, is he growing in his hatred for it? I'm not excusing any sexually deviant activity. There is none that's justifiable. But the point is, it's two points. One, that sex can be an idol. It can be an object of worship and frequently is and not just for single people. But the other point I'm trying to make is that the person who fails in this area is not disproving his faith in Christ. What we're saying is that a pattern, as John the Apostle speaks about in 1 John, a pattern proves he's not in Christ. But the Christian can still engage in this kind of sin. You're really the people I'm talking to about this. It's easy for you and I to point the finger at others who are engaged in so much debauchery that we would say, oh, that's over the top. What about your own life? How frequently, how recently have you yourself engaged in the idolatry of sex? Be honest. Be honest. Don't let this be your neighbor's sin. Think rightly about your own life in this regard. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So so that kind of levels the playing field in, in terms of what's okay and what's not. Number 12, I didn't know what to call this. I landed on this word. I could have called it a number of other things. I'm not sure this is the best term. But the idol of domination. You want everyone to know that you're right. You may have even described yourself as a person who gets what he wants. You ever heard somebody say that? I always get what I want. Ultimately, you will be a person who gets what he deserves if that's your disposition. This can be subtle, this, this pursuit or this worship of domination. Proverbs 15 verse 2 says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. There's a constant expression of nothingness. And never willing to listen to others. Never considerate of what someone else might have to say that it might have value. But just constantly looking for opportunity to communicate what what that person thinks is right. Proverbs 29 verse 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You see there's a reason that the proverb says he who restrains his lips is wise. It gives opportunity to rethink what we're thinking. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Domination. And so obviously I'm not even talking about physical domination so much. Uh, But, you know, the willingness to put people in a stranglehold. To insist that others say things the way you say them. Think things the way you think, think them. Keep things the way you keep them. You've become the standard and so because you're right and certainly everyone else is probably wrong then you've got to dominate. You've got to get the last word. Number 13 a version of the Bible. Now typically you think of the King James only camp but, but let me just let me just uh, encourage you to not refer to the NIV as the nearly inspired version. 
Okay? I know a handful of people who love the NIV. The NIV has problems. The King James Version has nearly infinitely more problems than the NIV. We're committed to the New American Standard and the English Standard Version because they're literal translations. The ESV reads more smoothly for the most part than the New American Standard. But they are not the only expressions of rightly interpreted scripture. And so we don't wave our NAS in the air and say it's the only version. And by the way, if you read the King James Version, good for you. Keep reading that. But be careful to sit under the right teaching that will help you where there are problem passages that are the result of scribal issues. There are scribal issues. The word of God is preserved in heaven forever. Psalm 119 tells us, verse 89. One of the reasons that a man needs to go to a legitimate seminary is to know how to handle those things with confidence. To be able to stand in the pulpit and say that the word of God is inerrant. It does have no flaws. It will not mislead you. It has no errors. While knowing that on occasion there will be a young theologue who will come along and say, well, what about this passage in Joshua? What about over here in Mark 16? What about that? What do you you think about the end of Mark 16? I've got answers for those questions. Because I am convinced that the word of God in its entirety is completely inerrant and without flaw. Number 14, worship music style. You have to have hymns, or you have to have choruses, or you have to have the perfect blend of both. Did you know that there are some really, really bad hymns? Did you know that there are some really excellent modern hymns? Did you know we just sang a hymn, Speak, O Lord? Did you know that that is no less a hymn than it is well with my soul? In every way, musically, Speak, O Lord, is a hymn. It is not a chorus. But you think it's a chorus because it was written after 1959. Later this morning, we'll sing another hymn entitled The Power of the Cross. It is not a chorus. It's a hymn. By all musical standards, it's a hymn. And you say, well, it's not the kind of hymn I like. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I like hymns that I like. Oh, right. So what you really mean is that you only like songs that were written prior to 1960. And only if the author's first name is Fanny, Isaac, or Charles. (laughs) I love the hymns. Uh, Be Thou My Vision. It's my favorite song. It is well with my soul. How can you not be emotional about Christ when you think of the words of it is well? The church is one foundation. We love the hymns. We love the hymns. Paul said in Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. A chorus can be and frequently is a spiritual song. And the Bible commands us to sing them, not only to God, but to each other. Maybe you worship our music ministry. Maybe you like it exactly the way it is. And if we were to make a change, that might cause you to question whether or not that meets your preference requirements. Number 15, theology. Theology, you say, how can a person worship theology? I mean, how can you get too much theology? Well, I don't think you can get too much theology because life is theology. But you can worship certain theologies. If your theological conclusions... Now hear me when I say this. This is really important. If your theological conclusions have become more important to you than the honest process by which you are to develop them, you have lost your way. If your theological conclusions have become more important to you than the hermeneutical process, the Bible study process by which you should get there, you've lost your way. Young men, develop your hermeneutic before you consider your theology. And be careful who you're listening to. Be careful who you're reading. Number 16, people. People, of course. I'm going to give you some letters on this one. Letter A, your kids. 
Many people worship their kids. You can have a very unrealistic view of your kids. You can think much more highly of them than makes sense, and you can never confront them. As a result, you may be giving them the benefit of the doubt past what's realistic, and everybody else is wondering why you don't see what they see. Your problem is not the culture in which your kids were raised or are being raised. It's your lack of willingness to believe the Bible is enough and that it has all things pertaining to life and godliness. Your problem is your own idolatry that is cultivating your own children's idolatry. The more you worship your children and are unwilling to truly assess them honestly, the more you are cultivating idolatry in them of other false gods. B, your parents... You might even worship one of your parents to the exclusion of the other. I had a friend when I was a kid, and he would, depending upon whether it was Wednesday or Thursday or Monday or Friday, he was telling me everything that was wrong about his dad and how great his mom was, and then a few days later, the exact opposite. Parent idolatry. Your problem is not your parents. It's not that they're so great, or one of them is greater than the other. It's your unrealistic expectations of your parents. You expect certain things of them and think that they achieve them often enough that they are worship worthy. Letter C, someone else's kids or parents. Someone else's kids or parents. Letter D, someone as the perfect spouse. Whether you're married or not and whether that person is married or not, stop it. I don't know how else to say it with greater clarity. Just stop it. Stop thinking about how someone else might have been a better spouse to you. If that has entered your mind once, twice, or more, stop. Kill it. Do not let that fester. Don't let it thrive. Be convinced that the spouse that you have is the absolute best spouse for you. And if you are not married and you see someone else and think that that person might be a spouse that would be good for you and that person is married, stop. Stop. E, famous or public figures. Yeah, I'm a little um, befuddled as to how anyone would worship Justin Bieber, but... (laughs) It's pretty common. It's um, pretty pervasive in our society. Uh, And you and I can laugh at that, but you've got your own public famous idols, don't you? F, a prominent theologian. Are you more devoted to Jonathan Edwards or John Calvin or John MacArthur than you are the teaching and preaching ministry of your own local church? Or maybe it's R.C. Sproul or F.F. Bruce or D.A. Carson or Ted Tripp or Elizabeth Elliot or Elise Fitzpatrick. These are good men and women, by the way. I kept the list conservative and ministerially faithful. These are good men and women. I'm thankful for each of them and many others. I'm thankful for their ministries, and I benefit personally from them regularly, and so do you through our shepherding ministry to you. But they are not your shepherd nor will they stand accountable for your soul. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. But what about a pastor from the past? Oh, old brother Bill. Oh, he could preach. Oh, man. <laughs> Great. I'm, that's, that's really encouraging to me. <laughs> you need to be as the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2 verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You need to be as the Bereans in Acts 17.11, who were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. 
examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. But this doesn't mean running your pastor's teaching through the filter of the ministry of your favorite radio preacher. This is a new phenomenon in the last 40 or 50 years. It probably started with the likes of J. Vernon McGee, who is an excellent, was, did you know he's dead? You might not have known that. Sorry if that that scared anybody. Yeah. Still on the radio, still, you know, delivering phenomenally great preaching through those wonderful radio stations. But he's not your pastor. And he has no responsibility for you at all. Again, I love these people that I mentioned. And I want you to be subject to them. I really do. Why do you think I have made so many efforts to get you to the Resolved Conference and the Shepherds Conference and other conferences at Grace Church and other places? Why have we done that? Because we want you to have at your fingertips the right theologians, but they are not your pastor. They are not your pastor. And for you to be constantly asking the question, well, I wonder what John MacArthur says about that. Listen, I've been doing that for the last 20 years. And I'm going to continue to do that. But John MacArthur is not the standard. R.C. Spool is not the standard. They are Christians whom we love and are grateful for beyond measure. But they're not your pastor. Don't look to them for your primary spiritual growth. Look to those God has placed in your life. The shepherds, the elders that God has given to you as servants. Letter G among people. This might sound a little strange, but God the Son. Really? Yeah, you can worship God the Son with an overemphasis on his humanity. And you might start thinking of him as superhuman, and he wasn't. The perfect man, and he wasn't. I said this one time in a setting where I thought it would be received well and a guy quoted me later as saying you know you said one time nobody's perfect not even Jesus I didn't say anything like that then or now what I'm saying is Jesus is not the perfect man Jesus is God who became imperfect man and he was yet sinless sinlessness and perfection are not the same thing he is the perfect God who for the necessity of being the incarnate substitute for our sins took on imperfect flesh he hungered that's what I mean by that he suffered he experienced pain he suffered the emotion of anguish before he went to the cross don't superhumanize Jesus know him to be the God man and worship him rightly letter H you might worship God the spirit as a genie-like entity. He's the one you call on to get your food faster at McDonald's. He's the one you call on to fix all your health issues. He's the one you call on when that person won't be nice to you the way they should. That's idolatry. Letter I, you might worship God the Father as being disconnected. I kind of worship Him. He's out there somewhere, but... Do you think of him as your adoptive father? We've been through that text, right, in Galatians. Do you think of him as the one who thinks of you as his child, his son, his daughter in eternity past? That he sought out by pouring his wrath out upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that you would experience the same fullness of sonship as Jesus Christ does. Do you think of him that way? Or do you have an idolatrous, distant, disconnected view of him? Number three now in your four main points. Number three, the debilitating and damning result of idolatry. The debilitating and damning result of idolatry. Galatians 4 verse 11, as you know, says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. If I have strived with you, if someone has strived with you over spiritual issues and they've sat down with you, And made it clear, this is how your spiritual growth can happen. This is how it can be accelerated. And you said, oh, yeah, okay, but I kind of like my life the way it is. Or at least that's the way it looks like you're responding. Don't be surprised that you're miserable. Don't be surprised that the church is not everything you wanted it to be. 
Don't be surprised that your life is not what you expected. Be willing to acknowledge that idolatry is debilitating. When you're clinging to someone, something, that you have been warned time and time and time again is a diversion from faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Why are you still arguing when your life is in the condition that it's in, if that is the case? It often puzzles me that the person whose life is most miserable is the one who has dug his heels in most staunchly and is most defensive of a particular position. It's the person who's most miserable, whose life is debilitated spiritually and is refusing to repent of that. Letter B, under debilitating and damning, A was debilitating, B is damning, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. You know this from Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the more you are willing to maintain your commitment to false deity, the more you should fear this reality. There may be those among us who are destined for an eternity of torment because they will not release their false God. Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on to explain that some of the most vile idolatry is the idolatry of homosexuality. Number four. Number four, displacement and destruction of idolatry. You want to displace and destroy the idolatry, not necessarily the idol. Maybe the idol, but not necessarily. But what must be destroyed is the idolatry. The idol may be amoral. A piece of wood is not intrinsically evil. Letter A. Displace the idol with Jesus Christ. That's the solution. You say, I've tried that. No, you haven't. If you're saying, I tried that and it didn't work. No, you haven't. There's nothing more beautiful than Jesus Christ. There is nothing more satisfying than the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Can you say that? Can you say that when you get to the end of the day and you're still miserable? Your life is not what you had hoped it would be. You're clinging to something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say in the moment, I desire to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified? 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul says about the Thessalonians, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. What do you know about the Thessalonians? They were faithful. Paul was able to commend them. He said, excel still more. Keep doing what you're doing. And much of that is the result of the fact that they displaced their false gods with the one true God. That was the pattern of their lives. In Romans 13, 14, Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so letter B, destroy the idolatry. Destroy the idolatry. Displace the idolatry with Jesus Christ. But mark it down. You've got to engage in battle with your idolatry. You've got to call it what it is. You've got to stop justifying it. You've got to stop saying things like, well, you know, I know I failed in that area, but I'm sure I can overcome it. No, you can't. You've proven you can't. The solution to your idolatry is Jesus Christ. While embracing Jesus Christ to kill the idolatry. 
You remember from 1 John 5, 20 to 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is how he closes this letter, which talks about what it means to look like a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. And so here he reiterates that, this wonderful reality of what it is to know the one true God. This is the true God in eternal life. And then he says this, as a last line of defense, he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Protect your life from those things that you know will usher you into false deification. Displace your idolatry then with biblical worship. Let me ask you, how much do you know about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ versus some list of TV stars or professional or even college athletes or even a particular theologian? Throw that on the private scales of your spiritual life and and ask yourself, how much do I really know about Jesus Christ versus the demigods of our society? Jesus says in Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You know, Paul was writing to a people who were well aware of the reality that Israel had engaged in idolatry to the point that they embraced pagan idolatry by offering their children up to false gods. Tie them in a bag, throw them in a volcano. Seal them up in a in a jar and bless the building that's being built by sealing that jar then up in the walls of the building. You say, oh, it's terrible. And it is. But what kind of idolatry are you cultivating in your children? Who are their heroes? Who are your heroes? You say, well, my children are grown. Great. Maybe it's time to start over. Maybe it's time to look back at whatever potential idolatry you influenced in them by acknowledging it. Your kids know more about Michael Jordan than they do Abraham. I think with the, you know, what we commonly refer to as the holiday season coming on us, it's time to really think about how we spend our time. This is really, really serious. If I get to the end of my parenting and my boys know more about Superman and Iron Man and Hawkeye or whatever he's called than they do about John Calvin, Holder Zwingli, no true heroes of the faith, Elizabeth Elliot, that I've failed. Why? Because of my idolatry of my children that would cultivate my children's idolatry of something else. I can't say enough about how really heavy my heart is about this and about how important that, you know, personally, I, as the the shepherd of my family, the head of my own household, really need to rethink some things that we've done And I encourage you, as you hear my candor, that you would do the same. Do an inventory. Really look closely at how you're influencing not just your children, your siblings perhaps, your co-workers, your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. What kind of influence do you have on them? What are you doing with the small window of time that you have over the, the next few decades, right? Because that's what it is at best, at most. What are you doing with that time? Now listen, I'm not saying become a legalist who now requires certain things of other people so that you can be certain that they are in Christ. 
not saying that. I'm saying look at your own life as I look at my own life and ask the question, where is the idolatry? Where is the idolatry? Where is the displacement of Jesus Christ by something to which I have attributed deified essence, false deification, And now, what will I do to desire Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Father, we ask now as we go to spend time together singing that You'd help us to examine our hearts, examine our motives, ask the question, what what am I worshiping? Am I worshiping the music? Am I worshiping the instrumentation would help us too to recognize that the list of of idols that we looked at today is really small it's short in contrast to what it could be but help us to recognize the reality that that list is doubled when we think about the fact that many times we worship the absence of those things perhaps we worship the absence of our current job the absence of our current spouse. Maybe we worship the absence of certain other people in our lives. Lord, help us to acknowledge, even as I was well reminded this week, that but by the grace of God go I. Lord, help us to keep this, at least this morning, Lord, help us to keep this personal. Keep us focused on self that we would that we would hold off on the willingness to apply this message to someone else help me Lord to apply this to myself that as I think of Jesus Christ I would think of him as being worthy I would think of him as being exactly enough that I would think of him as being beautiful the object of my affections And may I see my idolatry, Father, as that which debilitates me, eliminates my spiritual growth, and ought to cause me to fear you all the more because ultimately idolatry is damnable. Lord, help us now to love and worship the one true God, Jesus Christ. Amen.